Welcome into Real Pod Wednesdays. Dan Hope joined by Griffin Strom as uh, we get into uh, the final week of May here, closing in on June and a uh, big recruiting month for Ohio State coming up. And we'll uh, talk about that more over the next month, I'm sure. But the big news of the past week, it happened about a week ago now, but unfortunately, came out after our last podcast, but something that certainly we want to talk about on the show is the contract extensions that Ryan Day and Chris Holtman both received from Ohio State last week. The Board of Trustees approving a two-year contract extension for Ryan Day that will run through 2028, raising his pay for this year from $7.6 million to $9.5 million. Chris Holtman, meanwhile, getting a three-year contract extension through the 27-28 season with a $500,000 raise to $3.5 million. Griffin, just what were your you know, initial reactions to learning about those contract extensions? Yeah, well, starting with the, the day aspect of things, I think once we started to see some of the contracts that were being signed by other head coaches in the Big Ten, specifically in the Big Ten East Division, guys that Ohio State and Ryan routinely dispatched with in recent years, the Mel Tuckers, James Franklins of the world, and some of the numbers that those guys are starting to pull. I think a lot of people started to say, is Ryan Day going to get that extension? Of course, we had a chance to ask Gene about that in December, and he had said at the time that he wasn't really thinking about that at the time. I think a lot of people thought that that was probably just a little bit of smoke and mirrors, and that he probably was actually having some of those conversations behind closed doors. So that doesn't really surprise me. He's in the that $9.5 million club there now. And then but then obviously on the basketball side of things, I think the the bigger surprise of those the contract stuff with several of the Ohio State coaches was that Chris Holtman got a three-year contract extension. Of course, he he was already going to be through 2024, 25. Now his contract will run through 2027, 28. And of course, the reason that that's a little bit semi-controversial is just because. Of course, the way the basketball season ended, the fact that a lot of Ohio State fans are kind of groaning a little bit about where is the basketball program going? The Buckeyes are going to the NCAA tournament, but they're not getting very far necessarily, and they're not winning Big Ten championships. I think those goals are still set for the program, but now Chris Holtman's going to get a little more, maybe uh, take the pressure off at least for maybe next season in particular, I think. Yeah, I think my initial reaction when I, heard that Holtman was getting a contract extension was, oh boy, I'm sure uh, no Ohio State fans will have thoughts about this because uh, as has been the case pretty consistently over the last couple of years, there's plenty of takes out there in the fan base about Chris Holtman and understandably so. Ohio State fans, they saw this team go to Final Fours under Fad Mata and Chris Holtman has not been able to get Ohio State to that point yet. And now being five years into his tenure at Ohio State, Certainly, there's an expectation for Ohio State fans of wanting more. And I think at a minimum, among many Ohio State fans, probably a feeling of before you're going to give them a raise and a new contract, you should at least have to prove something more, at least get them to a Sweet 16 before he gets that new contract. I think the way Gene Smith and Ohio State look at it as he's he was getting down to what do he have? Three years left on that initial contract. <laughs> Typically, when a coach gets down to that point in their contract, Ohio State typically likes to work on a contract extension because if not, you get a lot of negative recruiting of 
oh, this guy's not going to be there much longer. His contract's running out. And so I think Ohio State wants to project that sense of stability in order to do that. You know, I think that's, you know, why the contract extension is coming now for Chris Holtman. I, I think it's important to keep these things in context because I don't know if the contract extension really changes anything. I mean, I think, like you said, I think the one thing it signals to me is he's not on the hot seat this year. If I, I know there's people out there who want this to be a prove it year for Chris Holtman. I know there's people out there who think if Chris Holtman doesn't make the sweet 16 this year, he should be fired. I think this contract extension signals that's not going to be the case for this year. And we've talked about it before. I don't think it should be the case for this year because we're talking about a team that has massive roster turnover from last season. I mean, literally is returning two players who played last year. Zed Key and Eugene Brown. Everyone else is either new or was out all last season with injuries. So he's basically working with a brand new team this year. We've talked about it before, but you know, I, I think you have to temper expectations when you're talking about bringing in almost an entirely new roster. So that's not to say that the expectation shouldn't be to make the Sweet 16, but I also don't think it's fair to say if Chris Holtman doesn't make the Sweet 16 this year he should be fired. And I think a lot of that goes to the fact that they did bring in a top six recruiting class, five freshmen who are all highly regarded guys. I, I We've said it before, and, and this doesn't really change my thinking is I think you've got to give him two more years, at least to see what he can do with that recruiting class. Now, I still don't think this contract extension guarantees anything for Chris Holtman beyond the next two years, because the contract extensions only mean so much in Ohio State basketball. Now, with that being said, we haven't received the full terms of contract yet from Ohio State. We don't know what the buyout looks like. So when we see those full terms, that might give us an even clearer picture of what this contract really means for Chris Holtman. But, you know, it, it certainly doesn't guarantee that he'll be at Ohio State for six more years. It, it is a vote of confidence from Ohio State. It does suggest that they think better things are to come for Chris Holtman's program and that they want him around for years to come. But I still think there will come a point much sooner than six years where he's going to have to prove himself to keep his job. I just don't think that point is this year. Yeah, for sure. And you talk about the recruiting. I think that's a, a huge part of the you know, extension and everything too, because when we got a chance to ask Gene Smith about, you know, Chris Holtman's contract as well in, in that same December press conference, he, he just kept saying that Chris Holtman's recruiting is quote off the chain right now, I believe is the, is what he yep. uh, used to describe that. And I mean, if you look at the, the recruiting class, the, the one he's bringing in this year, his best ever top, top five, six in the country, sometimes it, you know, sh shifts or whatever. But um, I mean, even honestly, when you look at the, the that 2019 class, which was his previous best at Ohio state, but like almost all those guys left with the, the DJ cartons and, and Alonzo Gaffney's and, and such, but EJ Liddell was in that class and he's en has ended up panning out very nicely. And he's going to be a first round NBA draft pick. You look at Malachi Branham too. The fact that that was a, that was a guy that 
Chris Holman just brought in, in with that recruiting class just being he and Kalen Etzler. It wasn't any class that was looked at as some huge national class or anything like that. But I mean, the success of Malachi Branham, I think also speaks to the same recruiting success. And now the fact that you're starting to have these first round draft picks and you're bringing in a bunch of top 50, top 60 guys in the class. Um, I think you know he, Chris Holman might need a little more time to see what will come of that. And Gene Smith is maybe allowing him to do so, even if obviously, like you said, it doesn't mean he, that Chris Holman's actually going to be there for 11 full years, the full extent of the contract. But for the time being, a little more wiggle room, given that there was some criticism at the end of the season. Yeah. I mean, the reality is you're not going to fire a coach who's made the tournament every single year, who won a game of a tournament who's also bringing in a top six recruiting class. Like it, it just, that was never going to happen. He, he was never going to get fired after last season just because they didn't make the sweet 16 or because they struggled down the stretch of a regular season. Like that was never going to happen. And I think now it's safe to say that unless things really go terrible this year, he's not in the hot seat right now. I think in, in two years from now, we have to see, okay, has this recruiting class panned out the way they've expected? Have they made progress toward making a deeper run in the tournament? Or have they actually made a deeper run in the NCAA tournament? I think all those things will need to be evaluated over the next couple of years. And then if that kind of progress hasn't been made, if this kind of recruiting momentum hasn't been sustained, then I think those conversations can reignite again. But I think at least it at least signals for now that Ohio State believes in Chris Holtman, that his job is safe and secure for right now. And obviously Ohio state is going to expect him to build on what he's been able to do so far. If anybody thought this was going to be, you make the sweet 16 or you're done kind of year for Chris Holtman, this would indicate that's not the case. And back on the football side of things, Dan, obviously Ryan Day's extension, a a lot kind of harder to question or, or, or gripe about if you're an Ohio state fan. Uh, then Chris Holman's. Obviously, we already mentioned Mel Tucker's name with the $9.5 million uh, number. This was inevitable, right, Dan? I mean, how surprised would you have been if this hadn't have materialized in this kind of same timeline here? Yeah, I would have been surprised. I mean, especially, I, I think we heard through back channels about the Holtman extension first. And as soon as I heard that, it's like, well, they've got to give one today, right? Like, you can't give an extension to you know Chris Holtman and, and not give one to the football coach whose team has finished in the top six of the AP poll every single year since he's become head coach. So yeah, I mean, I, I think this was inevitable. I think as soon as Mel Tucker got that 10 year, $95 million deal, and then James Franklin gets a big deal that, you know, they, they had to raise Ryan Day's compensation to put him where he belongs, which is the highest paid coach in the big 10 and one of the highest paid coaches in the country. And I think, Again, if you want to take the counter view of that, I think the counter view you certainly can make is, well, why are you giving him a big raise right after he lost to Michigan after not winning the Big Ten this year? I know there's people out there who think, well, let's win a national championship first or, or things like that. But I think the reality is it's all just like anything in, in, in business. The market dictates your value. And I think in this case, he had become underpaid based on what those other coaches were making. And so I think it makes total sense for him to get this raise now, for him to get this extension now. I mean, we know that whether whether he has any real interest or not, the NFL rumors have continued to be out there every year with 
with Ryan Day. And so they've got to compensate him well to ensure that Ohio State remains the place that he wants to be. But certainly, I think it is. And this is another sign of that. And then now you look at it, because obviously, with the, the coaching staff changes this offseason, also a lot of other guys, the offensive coaches getting raises as well on the assistant coaching you know staff there. Ryan Day now getting a big raise as well. The numbers are pretty uh, pretty eye-popping, Dan, coming out to, to $18.283 million for the Ohio State football coaching staff, which is more than $4 million more than last season, which is which seems wild. But I think that obviously tells you where the priorities are at in the athletic department in terms of getting a, making a real national championship run and, and, and getting that, that, that monkey off the back, per se, for in the Ryan Day era now, given that he hasn't won a national championship in the first few years, like a couple of his predecessors have. Yeah. It's a lot of money. I mean, if we just had to take a step back, cause it's like, I think you can kind of get like desensitized to these numbers when you're in the thick of it. But it's like, if we kind of take a step back, like it's kind of wild to think about that. Like, yeah, like a public university is spending $18 million on football coaches. Like it's wild, but again, it goes back to the market. It goes back to the arms race of college football. That, that That's where the market has taken this thing. And Ohio State very clearly wants to be competing for national championships. And if you want to do that, you've got to, you've got to spend the way the other top schools are spending. You've got to put in the same kind of resources. And so I think certainly the resources that Ohio State has put into the football coaching staff this offseason does show they are committed to spending what they need to spend to compete for national championships. And obviously important to clarify that money, it's that money is coming from athletics revenue. It's coming from boosters. It's not coming from taxpayers or students paying for the coach's salary. So I know I saw some comments about that uh, after we posted our story about his contract, but it's not really where it's coming from. It's coming from the revenues they're making off of athletics. But I think it's, Notable in the sense that I, I can just think back to a couple of years ago when, I mean, I mean, it wasn't long ago. I think Greg Schiano was the first million dollar assistant and that was like four years ago. So like it, it wasn't that long ago that Ohio state was very hesitant to get into that like million dollar range for coaches. And it, there was definitely like, there was a time where there was kind of a feeling that like Ohio state, like isn't willing to go quite as high as some of these other schools in terms of spending for assistant coaches, whether that was really true or not, I'm not sure, but I know that, you know, perception was out there for a a period of time that Ohio state didn't want to go quite as big as some other schools in terms of spending for assistant coaches. But I think it's become very clear this year that if that was the mindset at one time, it's not anymore because clearly they decided we, we need to go and spend more than anybody else to ensure that we have the best possible coaching staff we can. And I mean, it's also just striking. You think about a couple of years ago, I mean, all the money that Ohio state lost due to COVID. I mean, the the athletic department was in, I don't remember the exact numbers, but they were in a massive deficit because of all the money they lost due to COVID. And obviously they're recovering from that pretty well. If they have the money to go spend more than $18 million on football coaches. You'd think so. You'd think so. But Dan, I think you you wrote a piece the other day, kind of taking inventory, looking at the the first three years now of Ryan Day's tenure and kind of, you know, stacking that up against some of the coaches past at Ohio State. Obviously, we've had 
the tremendous levels of success. Obviously, Ryan Day's had a lot of success, but you know, a, a couple of things maybe holding him back from being really up there with some of those guys, just in terms of the fact that obviously he hasn't won a national championship yet. And then obviously the Michigan loss this past year, putting him one and one in that rivalry as head coach at Ohio State. How do you kind of take inventory of it all as we kind of sit here in the offseason and have a chance to hit pause and look you know, at, at a time before the next chapter of his kind of career begins now post-contract extension? Yeah, I mean, the hard thing for Ryan Day is that his predecessors set the bar so high because Jim Trussell won a national title in his second year and Urban Meyer won a national title in his third year. So if you just compare him to the last two full-time coaches, you can say, He's behind. Like he he hasn't won a national title yet. And that and that that's how high the bar is. I wrote it in a piece. I said there's very few schools where you would be expected to win a national title in your first three years as head coach, but Ohio State is one of them. So that's just the expectation. And so I think it's simply reality to say that over time, Ryan Day's legacy is ultimately going to be determined by number one. How many national championships does he win? And number two, how often does he win against Michigan? And if you look at those two categories right now, and if you just compare him to Urban Meyer, he's not, he's one and one in the game and he hasn't won a national championship yet. So I think those are the things, if if we're really going to just compare him to those last couple of coaches, it's fair to say he has not risen to the Meyer or Trestle level yet because he hasn't won that national championship because he only has one win against Michigan, which of course is not really his fault because the 2020 game was canceled. Ohio state certainly would have been favored in that game. So I think it's fair to say that Ohio state would probably be two and one against Michigan. If not for the COVID outbreak that hit Michigan before that game in 2020, but nevertheless, I think those are the things he has to prove. At the same time, I mean, his winning percentage is just below 90%, second best for an Ohio State coach for three years after Urban Meyer. So his consistency has been tremendous. The, the only Ohio State coach who's ever won two outright Big Ten titles in his first three years, and he did that back-to-back in his first two years. And so, I mean, obviously the one caveat that comes with that is he inherited the program from Urban Meyer at a place where it was already elite. Again, I mean, you look at Urban, like Urban had to come in and take over a program that had gone six and seven the year before, and he achieved immediate success. Even Trestle taking over the program from John Cooper, they had some lean years with Cooper before he came in. And so I, I think it's fair to say objectively that he's not he hasn't quite put himself in that Meyer Trestle tier yet in terms of accomplishments, but yeah, I think he's close. I mean, I think you can absolutely look at what he's done so far. And I think I feel confident saying that Ryan Day is one of the elite coaches in college football right now. I mean, he's got to, you probably got to put Nick Saban and Dabo Sweeney and Kirby Smart ahead of him because they've actually won national titles. So I, I think it's fair to say that you, you've got to win a national title before you're you're in that same plane, but he's close. I mean, I I think there's no doubt that when you're talking about a guy who's now one of the top five highest paid coaches in college football, that's where he deserves to be. And I think you just look at what you look at what he's doing recruiting wise. I mean, he's recruiting at just as high, if not an even better level than Urban Meyer. And so I, I think he's set the program up for a chance to compete for national championships every year 
to compete for Big Ten championships every year. And so ultimately, he's got to do those things. I mean, ultimately, we can say that he, he has a chance to do those things. He has to actually do those things first. But I think the program is in great hand under Ryan Day. And I think Ohio State should feel good that it has an elite coach in Ryan Day. But ultimately, when we talk about his legacy down the line, it's ultimately going to be measured by does he win national championships and is he in time able to dominate Michigan the way Urban Meyer and Jim Trestle did. And Day and Holden were actually not the only Ohio State head coaches to receive contract extensions all on that same day, kind of that same news release we got there last week. Obviously, Kevin McGuff for the women's basketball team, Nick Myers, men's lacrosse, and Steve Rolick for the men's ice hockey team all got extensions as well. One person that did not get extended was Greg Beals, the the baseball coach at Ohio State. Anything really jump out to you there as a surprise, Dan? I mean, obviously the one, the the firing of Beals and whatnot may be most notable there. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think it's particularly surprising that Ohio State chose to move on from Beals. You look at, they went just 21 and 30 this year, had a losing record in Big Ten play, did not make either of a Big Ten or NCAA tournament. So I think it was time. I think that's, you know, we were having conversation off air about it yesterday about what are the realistic expectations about for Ohio State baseball. I mean, it's even a different conversation than when we talk about Ohio State basketball with, with Chris Holtman. I mean, for Ohio State baseball to become a national championship contender, it, it's going to be hard pressed to do that because typically Northern teams just don't have the same kind of success that Southern teams do. I mean, I know from covering Clemson earlier in my career that College baseball is just way bigger down in the South than it is up here. And so I think it's going to be difficult, no matter who the coach is, for Ohio State to get to a point where it's a serious national contender in baseball. But I think if you're Ohio State, you should at least expect to be a Big Ten contender, which it was not this year. It has been at times in the past, but it hasn't been consistently. And so I think it was time for Ohio State to to move on from Greg Beals. And it'll be interesting to see who they bring in as the next coach. I think for me, the biggest surprise of all that was where's Nadine Musserall's extension after winning the first national championship in women's hockey history. You'd think she would be on that list of coaches getting uh, a nice raise and an extension. So I'm sure that will come in time, but that I know I, I was asked by a couple people about that. And that was probably my first thought too, is man, I'm surprised that she's not on this list, just considering what women's hockey accomplished this year. Yeah, definitely would be a well-deserved uh, situation there for her. Obviously we spoke to her on the show as well in, in recent months, but Dan, let's get into some SEC uh, drama here because we're already talking coaches. I mean, is there anything bigger in the world of college football than the spat recently between Nick Saban and Jimbo Fisher, keeping things interesting for everybody covering college football and fans of college football in general over the offseason here. Obviously, Nick Saban came out and, and kind of criticized the Texas A&M recruiting class in, in this year in terms of insinuating and, and basically like saying outright that that Texas A&M bought every one of the, the players on their team. Obviously, with NIL stuff opening up, there's been a lot of talk about specifically that Texas A&M class because it's so much more loaded than some of their recent classes and not to say that they haven't recruited well before, but it's like what, like four or five star guys in the, in that class. I think they had one five-star guy in the previous class, like seven top 100 guys. It's an absolutely loaded recruiting class. And it's not like we're seeing a Texas A&M program that's coming off of a national title win. So there have been, you know, 
rumors swirling around about that in the age of NIL. Nick Saban came out and basically pulled no punches when talking about that and pretty much went off on that that topic. And then Jimbo Fisher comes back and calls a press conference of his own to address all that. Dan, what was your reaction when you were seeing all of this stuff go on in real time? Yeah, you're selling that Texas A&M class a little short. They have eight five-star recruits and the highest rated recruiting class ever. So don't sell that short. That that Texas A&M recruiting class is pretty ridiculous and is undoubtedly a reason why Nick Saban decided to take aim at them because Texas A&M was the only team to top Alabama in the recruiting rankings last year. So certainly couple that with the fact that Texas A&M beat Alabama last year and uh, a little bit of bad blood there. Uh, It's now become a lot of bad blood uh, between those two coaches based on Jimbo's fiery response in which he called Nick Saban, quote, despicable and a narcissist. So quite the feud in college football between those two. But to me, it's fun. Like, these beefs are good for college football, right? If we're going to remember that like this is ultimately supposed to be entertainment and it's supposed to be fun. Like, I mean, I, I mean, I, I had ESPN on a lot last week and I had it on for PGA championship coverage. And typically this time of year, you don't see a lot of college football talk on sports center, NBA playoffs going on NHL playoffs. Again, it was a major championship week in golf. You, you don't, you know, ESPN, they typically don't cover college football offseason stuff the same way they cover NFL offseason stuff or even NBA offseason stuff. So they were talking a lot about the Saban Jimbo beef. And I think that it, it brings more attention to the sport. And whoever you're, depending on your viewpoint, you may look at it as positive or negative attention. But to me, like, if we remember that, like, this is supposed to be fun at the end of the day, like, I think it's good for the sport. Like, I want more of this. Let's hear Ryan Day and Jim Harbaugh take shots at each other. Like, I mean, this is fun. I mean, I mean, think of the ratings that Alabama, Texas A&M is going to get now. It's going to get way bigger ratings because of this. So I kind of rolled my eyes when I heard about, you know, Greg Sankey, you know, putting the gag order on SEC coaches effectively and telling them not to talk to the media about this. Like, to me, like, lean into it. Like, people are talking about, SEC football at a time when there's really nothing happening in the sport of college football. Like to me, like lean into it, embrace it. Like I I think when you look at how a lot of sports market themselves, like a lot of times these kind of storylines kind of build up intrigue in sports. And so to me, like lean into it, like it's fun. Like I want more fiery press conferences like we saw from Jimbo Fisher. Yeah. Now it doesn't mean that I also don't think it's a little bit silly because I mean, I think Jimbo was awfully defensive over something that may have not even really technically been breaking the rules anymore based on an IL. I mean, it's, I, I think it, it all probably, if we're taking a serious look at it, probably all got a little bit overblown, but to me, like it's fun. Like I want more of this. I want more of coaches, publicly going at each other. Cause I think we live in such a world now where everything gets so broken down and analyzed coaches tend to be very careful about what they say, but it's fun when the gloves come off, the filters go down and two of the biggest names in the sport just decide to go at each other. 
Yeah, Dan, I'm always rooting for for that type of press conference and, and to specifically like be sitting there for reporting live from one because, it, like you said, it is such a blast and you, know, you see it on TV sometimes or obviously just growing up before actually getting into the business of actually doing this and you see those moments, but um, actually covering press conferences and being there live, getting to to experience that would be pretty fun as well, I imagine. And yeah, but I think that the one thing though I would say is I think even though you said everything that actually has gone on with the Texas A&M recruiting class and everything could actually be totally fine by by current NIL rules and everything like that. Anyway, it's still just, it's such a new space, I think, for a lot of people to, for stuff to be out in the open about like players getting these deals that it still does seem when you have a guy like Nick Saban saying some of these things, you get this kind of this notion that something that shouldn't be happening is, is happening. And I think that's probably why maybe a Greg Sankey doesn't want that type of stuff being highlighted, just the because Jimbo Fisher obviously comes back and he's saying that, oh, Nick Saban's not this squeaky clean kind of guy either. So it kind of makes it seem like, oh, is there something that we don't know about that's going on with, with everything like that? Even though I think a lot of the stuff that goes on, I think people do know about and is nowadays stuff is obviously legal with NIL and everything like that. And we know the NCAA wants to crack down on it. So I don't know how effectively we will be able to. And I don't know if you know anything that allegedly happened with Texas A&M or Jackson State or any of this would constitute violations based on big guidelines that the NCAA has now put out there. But I'm sure that's a lot of it too. And and listening to Saban's comments, like they certainly did come across as pejorative. Like they certainly did come across as like him being critical of those coaches. Now, at the same time, like it's important to recognize the setting that those comments came in. They came in front of Saban talking to a lot of boosters. So I think a big reason why Saban said what he said is he was trying to sell his boosters. Hey, we need you to step up. We need you to put more money in our collectives so that uh, we can make sure that we're able to compete with what these other schools are doing. And so it did certainly come across in a condescending way with Saban saying, we didn't do that, but they did. I mean, I, it, it certainly was condescending in that regard, but I think at the same time, like a big reason why he was saying that stuff is because he was trying to drum up his boosters to put more money into Alabama to make sure they're able to compete with the schools that are doing this stuff. So it's such a fascinating time in, in college sports. It's a wild time for sure. And I don't know it, how good any of this is for college football, but you know, it's it's fun when you see two of the you know coaches from two of the power programs in the sport going at it like that. And it's interesting to kind of think about, could this change the balance of power in the sport? I mean, we know Alabama has been you know such a dominant program. And I mean, people were kind of trying to analyze, well, does, does Saban feel threatened? I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know about that. I think Saban's probably still pretty confident in what he's doing. But you know, it does adding a new element into the way things have been done for so long does change the game for a program that's been so dominant under the way things have been done. And so I know just based on Saban's comments consistently, he's not a big fan of this whole recruits getting offered big deals before, you know, they even arrive on campus. I know he said in his comments that 
you know, he wants them to have a strong collective, but he wants it to be a scenario where every player on the team is getting the same amount of money. And I know, I think one of the collectives, at Ohio State Cohesion Foundation, I think they're trying to do kind of a similar thing with Ohio State. So it's going to vary from market to market. But I think a coach like Nick Saban, he's going to adapt however he has to adapt at the end of the day. I mean, he's been adapting his entire career. So I think at the end of the day, he's going to adapt and do what he needs to do to compete in the NIL space. But I do know that game in October, I think it's the game. I think it's the same day as Ohio State versus Michigan State. So I don't know how much I'll actually see of it, but I do think that Alabama versus Texas A&M game on October 8th is going to be very entertaining. And then does Nick Saban go on that same rant if let, let's say Alabama had 10 five-star guys in this class and, and they had the number one, d- does he do it at all? If, if he number one and, and not number two, probably not. I mean, he probably doesn't, if at the least he probably doesn't specifically take aim at Texas A&M the way he did. Right. Right. That's why I thought it was just funny. Cause it, it did seem like a kind of a, a tantrum, but you know, I'm, I'm certainly glad it happened and it made for some uh, funny headlines this week and, and sound bites that'll live on for, for some time. I would have to imagine. In other news this week, it looks like divisions are about to be dead in college football because the NCAA announced that conferences are no longer required to have divisions to host conference championship games. The Pac-12 immediately, I mean, within minutes of the NCAA putting that out there, the Pac-12 announced that it was eliminating divisions. The Mountain West has also followed suit, and it certainly sounds like the Big Ten is probably going to follow suit too. I mean, this came up. You know, during that Gene Smith press conference in January that you referenced before, he mentioned back then that there there had been talk about no longer having divisions. I know Gary Barter from Iowa has been talking about it for a while. A Michigan State's athletic director said Monday that changes are coming to the Big Ten. Somebody also pointed out, I know Ohio State had done this a while ago, but somebody also pointed out that all the Big Ten football websites now none of them have any Big Ten games listed for 2023. So I think those conversations were already happening regardless because the 2022 schedule was adjusted because of the COVID year. And so there were going to be adjustments made anyway, but uh, certainly I think there's a possibility of much bigger adjustments now because I think it's very possible that by next year, there's no longer going to be a Big Ten East and West. It's just going to be all one Big Ten. And you know, that will certainly be a change. I think the question is that a good or a bad change for Big Ten? What, what say you, Griffin? I think it will certainly be cool to actually have the, the two best teams in the, the league play by the end of the year to determine the, the champion, of course. I think it will certainly hurt some of maybe the, the teams that were are in the current West division that have gotten those championship opportunities that, that wouldn't have otherwise if this was the system in place before. Um, you think of the Northwestern in the Big Ten championship games in recent years and and scenarios like that. But yeah, like the, obviously it would set up the possibility of like an Ohio state playing Michigan, of course, in back-to-back weeks, let's say they still have the same traditional final regular season game. But of course, then if they're the number one and number two and ending up playing again, which I don't, I personally don't know how I feel about that, honestly, because I don't know. I just, it's such a traditional game and there's so much kind of mystique around it that I don't, I'm not sure if that would like, I don't know, somehow take away from, because you see like, some of the repeat games with the SEC teams with playing in the regular season or the, the championship game, or the, then again in the, the CFP. And I, I don't always love the, 
that for some reason when it comes to college football personally, but maybe that does add a whole nother level of, of contention with that rivalry in particular and give us more opportunities for, for Ryan Day and, uh, and Harbaugh to go back and forth, adding another layer of just contention and everything like that on top of it. What about you though, Dan? Do you think it, it would it be better or are there drawbacks that you can't get around there with that? Yeah, I'm with you on that. As we speak, there's a poll on 11warriors.com right now uh, asking our readers, how do you feel about the idea of potentially playing Michigan twice in one season? 29% love it. 36% meh and 34% hate it. So kind of a split, kind of a split there between fans. Uh, I think a lot of us are probably kind of in the same boat as us. Of kind of, I don't love it, but we'll see. It's one of those things. Like I, I do think like it, it would be weird. Like if they played two weeks in a row and like, I think it'd be weird. Like if one team won the regular season game, then the other team won the next week, then it's like, who gets the bragging rights this year? So like, I don't love that element of it, but I'm also keeping an open mind to it. Like I voted meh in the poll because like, I don't love it, but like, I also think of this past year, like I think a rematch would have been pretty fun. Like I think Ohio state would have been extremely pissed off going into that game the next week. And obviously playing in conditions that suit them better playing in a dome rather than playing out the cold and the snow. I think and probably been healthier after the flu outbreak. I think Ohio would have been, you know, very motivated to go in there and try to turn the tables in that game. And if Michigan had won again, which they certainly could have with the way Ohio state played on defense last year, Michigan would have had super bragging rights. If you had, uh, you won, you know, two in a row. So I think the idea of winning two in a row against Michigan, I don't think Ohio state fans would hate that. I think it's more of the idea of if you beat Michigan in that regular season game, and then they beat you the next week, then you lose all those bragging rights you got for that quote unquote biggest game of the year. So yeah, I'm, I'm on the fence about it in that regard, but I, I think if you just look at it as a whole for the big 10 and for Ohio state, I think it is a good move for the big 10 in the sense of if you have your two best teams playing in the big 10 championship game, you know, under the, I think in, I think if under the current format, it's good because it in, increases your likelihood that you're going to have a, a one of a four playoff teams. Cause like this, this past year, for example, if Ohio state had been in that game against Michigan, Ohio state probably could have gotten into the playoff if it had beaten Michigan and in that game, even if the two losses, the way things shook out, it probably would have gotten into the playoff if, if it had gone and beaten Michigan in that big 10 championship game. And so I think it's good in the sense of you're more likely to have two teams that are legitimate playoff contenders if you do it that way under the current format and then obviously a lot of this has to do with the future of college football which is at one point at some point or another of a playoff is going to expand and if you look at in a situation where the conference champion is potentially an automatic qualifier well you'd really want that automatic qualifier to be one of your two best teams you, you wouldn't really want that to be an eight and four northwestern who kind of lucks into the big 10 title so I think in that regard, it makes a lot of sense for the Big Ten in terms of ensuring that it has one of its two best teams as the conference champion and in the playoff, if we're talking about a potential automatic bid down the line, or there's been this talk of situations where it might not be an automatic bid, but there might be a certain number of bids that are reserved for the highest ranked conference champions. Well, you want to make sure you're going to be one of those highest ranked conference champions if you put the two teams in with the best records, 
you're going to increase your chances of doing that. And I think for Ohio State, I mean, if you look at Ohio State, you know, they would have they would have been in the Big Ten championship game this past year, even if a loss to Michigan under this format. They would have been in the Big Ten championship game in 2016 when their only loss was to Penn State. They would have had a rematch with Penn State. So I think for Ohio State, I mean, Ohio State is pretty much always one of the two best teams in the Big Ten. So for Ohio State, it's almost certainly going to mean more Big Ten championship game appearances because we've seen it. I mean, the, the East, I mean, every year since they've gone to East and West, the East has won the Big Ten championship game every year. They've consistently been the stronger division. And so I think for Ohio State, it adds more schedule variety. Now, I think that piece of it doesn't guarantee an easier schedule because if if they go with the idea of having maybe free protected games a year, I mean, Michigan's obviously going to be one of them. And you have to assume Penn State's probably going to be one of them too. So if you're still playing Michigan and Penn State every year, eliminating divisions isn't necessarily going to make your schedule easier, but you know, it, it at least gives you the sense of you're competing for two spots rather than one. And if you can get one of those two spots, which again, under the current format, Ohio State would do basically every single year, then but it's just going to increase Ohio State's likelihood of making the Big Ten championship game which in turn is going to increase Ohio State's likelihood of winning Big Ten championships and making the college football playoff. And so I think from the practical regard of how it improves Ohio State's chances of winning Big Ten titles and college football playoffs, I think it's a positive thing for Ohio State. I think that Ohio State-Michigan piece, that could take some time for people to wrap their heads around. But at least for me, I'm going to keep an open mind going into it of let's see how it works before we condemn this as a bad thing. And things are changing all the time in college sports, particularly with college football. And of course, some other changes that have now gone on the NCAA taking away the 25 men signing limit, the Houston nut rule for at least the next two, two years. And, and obviously in the age of the, the transfer portal and everything like that, it's kind of changed the way that rule has kind of been interpreted or thought of what, what exactly does it mean though, Dan, that that will no longer you know, be in place for the next two years? And what could you see the potential impacts of that being? Yeah, I don't, I'm not really convinced that it's going to mean a whole lot. And I think we've seen the schools find loopholes around that before. I mean, I know there's been years, if we go back to Nick Saban, I know there's been years, but Alabama signed like 28 players. So teams have already found loopholes around it. So I don't necessarily think it's going to change things a ton in terms of how schools recruit. I think the fear that people have is I this could increase the prevalence of, of players getting run off because if now if there's no limit to how many high school players you can bring in, then you know you, you're probably going to see certain teams they're just going to go get as much talent as they can and then they're going to push out the guys who haven't done much. So I think that's a genuine fear, but I also think at the same time, like uh, okay, like how many coaches are really going to want to bring in like 40 new players a year? You know what I mean? Like most likely your team's not going to be very good if you're turning over half your roster every single year. And so I don't really think this is going to change a whole lot. Like I think for, from Ohio state's perspective, I'd be surprised if Ohio state suddenly starts signing 35 players a year. I mean, we've seen in most years recently, Ohio state has stayed under 25 regardless because you still have to adhere to that 85 scholarship limit. And I think most coaches 
are going to want to have a veteran laden roster. They're going to want to develop players over time. So I think from Ohio State specifically, just based on the way Ryan Day has talked about developing talent and wanting to prioritize that, I don't think it'll really change anything for Ohio State. I think where it could change things is you look at a program like a US, these programs that are are going very heavy on the transfer portal right now, like, yeah, this could potentially allow them to bring in more transfers and potentially push out more players to make room for those transfers. So I'm not going to be naive and say like, that's not going to happen, but I think by and large, this probably isn't going to change much because I think they were already teams doing that. Another potential change, Dan, that I know you just wrote a piece on the other uh, just last week, of course, would be the, the possibility of the FBS in you know, FBS football teams and whatnot, just breaking away from the NCA entirely. It's something that Gene Smith's been talking about recently. Other bodies as well have been talking about this with the premise kind of being that the needs of the program, the FBS football programs are just so different than the needs of other sports within the NCAA that it would just be, it would make more sense to kind of split all together. And I know you've probably can, can break that down in a more uh, verbose uh, way than I can, or more eloquently. Um, but w- what are your kind of thoughts on that, that premise in general? And can, can you see any problems arising from that if it were to keep con- continue going down that path towards that actually ha- taking place? Yeah. I mean, admittedly, it's a little confusing. I mean, I know when I sent you the story to read it, it's like, Hey, make sure this all makes sense. Cause it is a little bit confusing, but you know, you, I know you did kind of ask me like, Hey, it all makes sense, but I, you know, you were kind of curious about what my thoughts were on it. So I figured we should bring it up here on the podcast. And I think it's a logical idea. A lot of the idea, the idea was initially proposed by the Knight commission in December, 2020. And it started to gain a lot of momentum here in the last month or two, really with Gene Smith. I think he initially told ESPN that he thought it would be good for FBS football to break away from the NCAA. And we've now seen some other prominent people like ACC Commissioner Jim Phillips and Miami Athletic Director Dan Radakovich have have come in and supported that idea as well. But you know, a lot of it really stems from the idea of the college football playoff is not governed by the NCAA. The NCAA, the NCAA's revenue distribution does not include any revenues from the CFP because the CFP is its own entity. And so the idea, as it's originally proposed by the Knight Commission, is FBS football and the CFP, it doesn't make sense for the CFP to govern college football's postseason while the NCAA governs everything else in the sport. So the idea would be to create a governance structure for college football under the college football playoff umbrella. And then you're aligning the revenues and the championship authority for the sport with the rule structure for the sport, which I think makes a lot of sense because effectively the NCAA, if you look at their revenue distribution, the vast majority of that revenue is generated from the NCAA men's basketball tournament. So this would only be a football split because they don't want to lose that NCAA tournament. That, that's always kind of been the fear of if a power five split off and did their own thing, you could kill the NCAA tournament. That this idea would not do that. This idea would keep the NCAA intact. Ohio State and all the other FBS schools would continue to be NCAA members for all other sports, but football would be under its own umbrella. And I think a lot of that from Gene Smith's perspective is 
the NCAA is too big. You've got 130 schools that are paying for 85 scholarships. And I mean, we just talked about before the money that Ohio state's putting into football. I mean, spending $18 million on its coaching staff, uh, FBS football is a different beast from every ever NCAA sport. There's the money that is generated by it and the money that is spent on it is far higher than any other sport. So it makes sense for FBS football to have its own set of rules, its own structure, because the rules that apply to an Ohio State, what makes sense for an Ohio State or any other FBS football school might be different from a school that doesn't offer FBS football or doesn't offer football in general. What makes sense for big time college football might not make sense for volleyball or soccer or golf or all the other NCAA sports. And so I know some of the things that Gene Smith has brought up is stuff like uh, the recruiting calendar and the health and safety issues and different things like that. It could be limits on coaches and you know personnel rules and all that kind of stuff. It makes sense how big college football is compared to all the other sports for college football to have its own structure and its ability to make its own rules that may not necessarily align with what makes sense for every other NCAA sport. So I, I think it's a logical idea. I think I mean, my feeling would be like, because obviously this has come up in conjunction with what's happening with NIL and all that. And my feeling would be like, I don't think this is going to solve all the problems. Like, I mean, I still think like with NIL and transfer portal and all that stuff, there's still going to be challenges associated with those things. And I don't know that a governance structure is necessarily, that's going to be the magic fix is college football having its own governance structure. But I think it makes sense because even for the other NCAA sports, you know, I talked to Amy Perko, the CEO of the Knight Commission, and one of the points she made was the NCAA has spent, you know, hundreds of million dollars on litigation over the past, you know, five years or seven years. And the vast majority of that litigation is tied to football. It's tied to revenue in college football and why aren't players getting a bigger cut of that. And so if you split football off into its own thing, college athletics leaders associated with that football governance structure would be able to more directly address the issues that are related to football. And then the NCAA would be able to focus on issues that affect all the other sports. So I think it makes sense. I mean, I think it certainly makes sense for to have the college football playoff be aligned with who's creating the rules for the sport because every other NCAA sport, the NCAA operates its championships for all the other sports. It doesn't for college football. So college football has always kind of been its own thing compared to the other NCAA sports anyway. And so I think it makes sense for college football to kind of be in its own umbrella. I think I kind of need to see if this actually gains momentum, like what the actual proposal is going to look like to really know like, okay, what are maybe some problems with it. I mean, I think it's interesting. I know the Knight Commission, one of their ideas was FBS football schools currently get an exemption that basically allows them to make a higher share of the revenue distribution in the NCAA. And the Knight Commission proposed eliminating that because FBS football would no longer be an NCAA sport if it was split off, which to me, that makes sense. Sounds like Gene Smith and other leaders in college athletics don't necessarily agree with that. They don't necessarily agree with anything that would take away any of their revenue. But she also made the point 
talking to me that basically the FBS schools, they have the power. Like they they have the voting power that if they decide they want to change the model a certain way, they can do it. And so that shouldn't necessarily prevent an FBS split from the NCAA because they can change a revenue distri- distribution model if they want to. And so whether that will ultimately be good or bad for the whole of the NCAA, I don't know. But you know, the, the idea, at least you know, from talking to people from a night commission, is they think a new structure for FBS football is what's best for the future of college sports. And they think it should be done regardless of whether the NCAA revenue distribution model changes as a result. How soon could we see something like that actually happen? I know you just said that the FBS would have has a lot of power in that situation to vote and, and make things how that how they would like it to be, but you know what? What, are, what to your understanding? What are the next steps in the process, and and how soon could actual changes take place in that regard? Well, I think now is the time to discuss those changes because the NCAA it just approved a new constitution in January and. The Division One Transformation Committee is in the process right now of considering major changes to how the Division One model works. So that's a big reason why now is the time this is coming up. That if you're going to change the model, like now's the time to think about these changes that may you know seem radical. And so I think if this continues to gain momentum, it's possible that this is something that within the next couple of years. We could see change. Now, again, whether this will actually happen, I don't know. I mean, Gene Smith's knowledge of the same thing. He said, I don't know if it'll actually happen, but he thought it needed to be said. So we'll see. I mean, we've seen so many times in college sports where it looks like something's going to happen and then it doesn't. That's the way things uh, work a lot of times with the NCAA. And so I have no idea whether it will actually happen, but I think if it is going to happen, it's probably going to happen within the next couple of years here as the transformation committee continues its work. Couple of other loose ends here, odds and ends. Obviously, the, the NBA draft combine just took place at the end of this past week. Two Buckeyes in that uh, mix, obviously, as potential first round draft picks Malachi Branham and EJ Liddell, of course. I don't know how much, Dan, that, that the combine actually really changed where they're going to end up, at least as far as when I was rounding up the mock draft projections and everything like that. It didn't seem like, you know, one day at the combine was going to have Malachi Branham jump into a top five pick status or anything like that. It still seems like Malachi Branham's he could be maybe one of the the final couple lottery picks. I think a lot of people like him to maybe go to the Cavs at that number 14 spot. It would make a lot of sense given him being a former Mr. Ohio basketball, everything like that. The St. Vincent, St. Mary, LeBron James connection, everything like that. It would only be, a, it would only make sense. But then EJ Liddell obviously probably will go later in the first round and not going to be a lottery pick. Uh, you wouldn't think, um, but still a first round selection. Nonetheless, um, anything, you know, stand out to you about, about any of that? I mean, the, neither one participated in the five on five scrimmages. And so I think EJ Liddell might have had like the highest standing vertical reach. Both of those guys had close to seven foot wingspans there as well. Yeah. I mean, it certainly seems like all the momentum is there for both of those guys to be first round picks. Certainly looks very likely that Ohio State will have two first rounders uh, a month from now. And that's a big thing for Ohio State, which has not had a first rounder since uh, D'Angelo Russell. So both of those guys seem to be in a really good spot. Malachi in particular just seems like momentum has grown and grown for him. Really dating back to that Nebraska game when I think we were flying back from the Rose Bowl as that game was happening. And it just seems like ever since then, his stock is just 
risen and risen steadily to where it looks like he's going to be the first one of these guys drafted. I don't know if I would have said that a couple months ago, but it certainly feels now like he's probably going to be one of the first two of these guys drafted. And maybe when we get closer to draft time, we can kind of talk about who we think is going to be the better pro. But, you know, it certainly feels like Malachi has the momentum to where he has a real chance to be a lottery pick. Right now, it would seem like a surprise if EJ was a lottery pick, but it does feel like he's pretty securely in that second half of the first round. And I know the NBA draft process, it's a little different than the NFL process. Like in the NFL, like, everybody goes through the combine. Like maybe they don't work out, but like everybody at least goes like the NBA, like some guys just don't even show up. Like they do nothing. They don't do medicals. They don't do team interviews. Like they do not. And I know like in the NBA, like there's quote unquote promises that happen where like guys basically get like told by teams we'll draft you. And sometimes they almost even like ask guys like not to do certain things. Like if they've promised to draft them, which that's a little weird for me as somebody who's followed uh, the NFL more, because that's not really the way it works in the NFL. But you would think just based on the way things have played out with Malachi deciding to stay in the draft before the combine even happened, and then neither of those guys scrimmaging, but that would tell you both of them are hearing good things to where they have reason to feel confident they are going to be first round picks next month. Question from a listener, Seattle Linga, who always makes sure to ask us things, which we kind of discussed this topic a little bit uh, last week, Dan, we were just looking at scheduling stuff for the season ahead for Ohio State. But Seattle Linga asks, within the Big Ten, who is Ohio State's biggest challenge this season? I know you can never count out that team up north, but who else is a serious contender with all the returning players? Dan, what say you? Yeah, I feel like we already answered this a lot last week, so we'll just keep it brief. But I mean, yeah, I mean, I think you've got to start with you've got to start with Michigan because I mean they beat Ohio State last year. So we we can no longer look at it as oh, you know, Ohio State's just gonna beat Michigan every year. I think you have to start with Michigan. Like I said, I do think I think Michigan will have the second best offense in the Big Ten behind Ohio State. I don't know if Michigan will have a top defense again. And so I don't think Michigan will be as good as it was last year, but I do think its offense will be dangerous to where if Ohio State's defense doesn't improve significantly, Michigan could certainly have a chance in that game. And then the other team I look at is Wisconsin because we know they've been consistently good on defense. I think they'll have a really good running game. I think the question is, can Graham Mertz get back to where he looked like he was a couple of years ago and how much of a passing offense will Wisconsin have? Can Wisconsin keep up in a track meet kind of game with Ohio State? Probably not. If they can keep it tight, can they beat Ohio State? Sure. So those are the two teams that stand out to me would be Michigan and Wisconsin. Yeah, I was going to say Wisconsin just because in earlier season tests, a team that can can drag you into a, a rough and tumble game, of course. And then just the fact that I feel like that's a game that that could be with Ohio State as it is now, kind of just like a, yeah, Wisconsin's a tough team, but you know, you assume you, you win that game, a team that you could potentially look over, but still a team that could present a, a very legitimate threat to Ohio State that some people might not be considering as much. Well, thanks for listening in, everyone. I hope you all enjoyed this week's show. Enjoy your uh, Memorial Day weekends coming up, and we'll talk to you next week.